Good morning, and if you're jumping in late, uh, my name's J.D. Mangrum. I get to be the pastor of Christ Church Charlestown, and it really is, as we jump into the, the sermon today, it's an honor to, to have you here with us, and I'm so grateful that of all the things you, you could be doing in the middle of this Christmas season, that you, um, as part of your season, would choose to worship with us. So, with that said, we're in the middle of a series called uh, Christmas at the Movies, and we've been looking over the last few weeks at little scenes um, from Christmas movies that we kind of grew up with or we watch every year with our friends and family. Uh, before we jump into the movie today, I just want to talk to you about department store Santas when I was a kid. Uh, they were, for me, in a word, yikes. Like, yikes. Obviously, very fake beards or worse, they might have had real beards that smelled like beef and cheese, as Buddy the Elf said in the movie Elf. They had those scratchy suits, and as a little kid, you had to go and sit on their laps. It was so weird. It's a nice year for social distancing for people and kids who are afraid of sitting on Santa's lap. They were, it was a stranger wanting me to sit on a lap in an age when parents were beginning to teach us that you never talk to strangers. And then, not only that, you had to take a photo with this stranger and all I got in return all we ever got in return was one of those dinky little mediocre candy canes that you got everywhere no thank you no thank you uh, how many of you were traumatized by visits to mall Santa's or even worse maybe Santa came to your church or a community center or something like that and your family to this day has this photo that your mom thinks is so hilarious of you crying or looking freaked out on Santa's lap I just can give up the whole Santa routine. It's not anything that I care for. We all knew, after all, that this wasn't the real Santa. That was the thing. It wasn't the real Santa. The real Santa obviously lives in the North Pole and was too busy for me as a kid to come down to the Houston Mall in Warner Robins, Georgia to take a picture with a freaked out kid. So, you can understand why I did not like 1983's A Christmas Story. First off, TBS played it for 24 hours straight on Christmas Day, meaning none of my other favorites were on television. Second, I didn't get that narration and the filming of it and all of that, the, the sort of reminiscent way that they filmed the movie. Nick and I were talking about this the other day. It just, it just seemed old and lame to me as a kid. And then, uh, but most of all, the most, uh, the thing I disliked the most was that Santa scene in A Christmas Story. I could not stand that Santa scene at Higby's. Uh, every single thing about it terrified me. Santa terrified me. That slide terrified me. The elves terrified me. The, uh, the weird kid in line before Ralphie, remember, who liked The Wizard of Oz, he terrified me. Um, Santa mentioning tapioca pudding was disgusting. The, the witch from The Wizard of Oz being in that scene made no sense to me. It was just so weird. And uh, it was just yuck. Now, at 43, as a dad and a husband, I watched that movie and actually it's become one of my all-time favorites. I know for Kelly Myers in the church, it's her favorite. How many of you love A Christmas Story? And, and, you know, in the comments, how many of you just do not like that movie, A Christmas Story? I know Kelly, it's her favorite movie of all time, so I know what she's going to say uh, to that. Every time I watch that movie now, though, as an adult, I see something beautiful and good of the gospel. Or, honestly, like a lot of movies, some, in some places I see kind of the opposite of the gospel, the good news that God comes to us in Christ and gives us new life and all those things. And I see something of the good life in that movie every time I watch it. So for me, it's right up there with Miracle on 34th Street, and It's a Wonderful Life, and a couple of others as one of my favorites. So today, we're going to dive into that dreaded scene when he meets, when Ralphie meets Santa, 
and we're going to see something of ourselves in Ralphie. We're going to see nothing of Jesus and Santa, and we're going to see how the gospel affects how we approach God. You think he thinks I'm working one minute past nine, he can kiss my foot. <laughs> Come on up for Santa's lap. Here's a wet one. <laughs> and what's your name, little boy? Come on, Randy. And what do you want for Christmas, Billy? A toy truck. Get him off my lap. Who's wet? The kids. Bye, Billy. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, I hate the smell of tapioca. Ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Nine o'clock? Great Scott, the store is going to close. Santa can't wait all night. Let's go! Come on up on Santa's lap. Ho, ho, ho! Come up! Ho, ho, ho! Ho, ho, ho! Ho, ho, ho! Ho, ho, Get him out of here! Come on, kid! Ho, ho! Come on up For Christmas, little boy. My mind had gone blank. Frantically, I tried to remember what it was I wanted. I was blowing it, blowing it. Come on, kid. How about a nice uh, football? 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 What's a football? Without conscious will, my voice squeaked out. Football. Okay, get him out of here. A football? Oh, no. Okay, what was I doing? Wake up, stupid. Wake up. No. no. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Man, that kid can't catch a break. He has five things going against him with this with this particular Santa. One, that Santa's ready to go. He has better things to do than hear from another kid after 9 p.m. And honestly, I uh, have been there when it's like you are ready to sort of mentally clock out from life, but you can't. Number two, that Santa is scary. How many of you find that Santa to be a little terrifying? To me, I do. Number three, that Santa sees Ralphie like every other kid that's set on his 
his lap that night. He says, don't you want a football kid? He can't see Ralphie for just seeing the masses of kids that have come up those steps, sat in his lap, and then go down that slide. Number four, that Santa judges Ralphie's request just like every other adult in Ralphie's life. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. I think about that line so many times, I just crack up. And finally, that Santa is loving or listening to Ralphie based on performance. He has no patience at all. And like a lot of other Santas, he, uh, and even the real Santa, he's checking a list and watching to see if we've been good or bad, naughty or nice, and he's gonna hold us accountable. How many of us find that scene disturbing? How many of you find it absolutely hilarious? Like, I, I know that we'll be kind of torn on that. How many of you find it really relatable? Before we start quoting our favorite lines from the movie, some of you already may be doing that, and I need to reel you back into the message really quickly, or you start talking about what disturbs you, let's pivot really quickly to, to Scripture. Today we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. It's honestly one of the harder books in the New Testament to read. It's right up there with, uh, with Revelation in some ways because it's written to Jews, which most of us are not. Uh, Hebrews, that's another name for Jewish people in the ancient Near East, who became Christ followers. And the author is taking different aspects of Jewish religious culture, be it priests or sacrifices or temples or Moses and Joshua or blood, and he's paralleling those things with Christ and what Christ did at the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection. He's paralleling it with the church and with faith and with grace and mercy and with the gospel. And since Jewish religious culture um, is foreign to us in 21st century Boston, the book can seem like, it can seem at points like weighty and hard to understand. In light of that, I want to read us three verses today, if I might. Um, and we're going to unpack them pretty thoroughly and compare it to that scene in a Christmas story. I'm going to want to call us to action. So in Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 14 and read 14, 15, and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is like the Old Testament, the the ancient Hebrew high priest in some ways. He's a shadow of that. So since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Verse 16, uh, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is a high priest, better than any Old Testament or modern priest uh, for that matter. What role, what was the high priest and what role did this person fill 3,000 years ago in Jewish culture? He represented God, he represented the people before God one day a year on Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement. And he would go in and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. The high priest wasn't sinless, but he would be a good man, and he was chosen from among the people to represent them, to stand before God on their behalf. Because he sinned like any other man or woman, he could relate to the human condition, but because he was morally upright, more than most people, he could offer an animal's blood on the Holy of Holies to cover for the people's sin on some level. 
Now, he couldn't make the sin right. The priest couldn't do that. In fact, the animal couldn't even do that. Only, uh, only God could forgive, but the animal's blood would seem to sort of cover the people's sin, and God would, by that act of faith, forgive or atone for their sin. Um, the priest represented the people. Jesus here is called the great high priest. Like the high priest, he represents the people uh, before God. He stands before God for us. Unlike the high priest, though, Jesus was sinless. Like the high priest, Jesus offers blood and a sacrifice to atone. Renee uh, Gingrass in our church watched The Passion of the Christ this week, I believe, and for the first time, and he saw on film Jesus offering blood, a blood sacrifice for humanity's sins. Unlike the high priest, though, Jesus offered himself once for all as the sinless Lamb of God. Jesus is our great high priest. Being fully God and fully man, Jesus gets us. <laughs> and man, we are a mess. We're actually a, a lot like little Ralphie. We each have weaknesses. Think about Ralphie. The, the, that word, though, for weaknesses is more like a... Uh, it's, it's more like... It's not just a lack of strength per se. It's kind of when the Bible says that uh, he understands our weaknesses, Jesus identifies with our weaknesses, he understands and identifies with our human condition. Truth is we're frail, we're powerless, we're stumbling and bumbling as Chris Berman used to say. Ralphie's most obvious weakness was his glasses. His glasses get bent at one point, get cracked at another point, remind us that this kid is human and uh, and, and we have our weaknesses as well. We have physical, emotional, relational liabilities, spiritual liabilities. We come with limits and weaknesses, right? None of us is Superman or Superwoman. Add to it, uh, we each have temptations. Verse 15 says, uh, and Ralphie has this overbearing dad who's tempting him to lash out at times. He has Farkas, the bully in his life. Um, he has an annoying brother. He has an interior sort of impatience. He has a desire to be liked and to fit in with his friends. He has a sweet but manipulative streak. And he has a one-track mind bent on a Red Ryder carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle. He has temptations. We too have temptations. Some are visible like a habit we can't seem to kick or something so deeply ingrained in us that it seems like a lifestyle and who we are. Some of our temptations are humorous like our morning commute. Some are outside of us like a crazy neighbor. Some are more sinister, interior, almost invisible to others, but just attempting to us and, and just as visible to God. Third thing that's going on with us, Jesus was without sin, but each one of us has sin. To name just two of Ralphie's sins that I think are hilarious in the movie, there's that moment where he loses the lug nuts and he says, Oh, fudge. Remember that? And then, uh, and then there's that other moment where he is pounding on Farkas and swearing and just beating that kid down. Ralphie was no saint. And frankly, neither are you or me. We can't justify our sin, but neither can we deny it. We each one miss the mark. And finally, like Ralphie, we each have need. We each have times of need, as verse 16 says. We can't do it all. We can't provide it all. We can't fix it all. We can't forgive it all. We can't give it all. We can't entrust it all. And we can't seem to believe it all. As much as we try to deceive ourselves and others, we all know we really have need. We feel the longing, the gap. 
Remember Ralphie opening the gifts and realizing that the one thing he really wanted wasn't there? How often have you taken stock of your life, your gifts, your resources, your abilities, your faith, and found it wanting or longing or coming up short? I mean, we are a lot like Ralphie. So I don't know about you, but I identify with that Santa scene. Here's some good news though. Jesus is nothing like that Santa in that movie. Here's the big idea today. God is the God who makes time for us. God is the God who listens to us. And God is the God who longs for us to approach in Christ. We have access to God through Christ and, and find that he was waiting for us all along. That Santa was both scary and busy. He had better things to do. He's ready to clock out. Despite our weakness, Jesus is approachable. We are urged, almost mandated, to draw near to the throne of grace. The message translation of the Bible by Eugene Peterson states it this way, so let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. I want to encourage you that you, Christian, can walk right up to God and have access to all that he wants to give you. We don't have to feel rushed or afraid at any time, in any day, in any way. He is so ready to give to us in any season. Jesus is approachable. And let me tell you that we've probably been sold a false bill of goods if we think of Jesus as being like that Santa in a Christmas story. I love what Howard Hall has begun to do. We call them breath prayers when he just approaches God in the course of a day with a request or a thought or a prayer for forgiveness or a prayer for peace or whatever. That Santa is scary and busy. Jesus is totally approachable. That Santa saw Ralphie as just another boy, probably just wanting a football like every other middle American boy in that era. Jesus, however, is sympathetic. Jesus feels for us, and Jesus even feels with us, empathizing, even in our temptation. He doesn't look at our temptations and sins and think, would you get it together already? He, Jesus knows what it's like to be homeless and hungry and tired and taken advantage of, and lied to, and judged and mocked, and doubted, abandoned or questioned by family, unmarried, alienated from God, abused unjustly and humiliatingly. Jesus understands what it's like to be the victim of racism or nationalism or classism and injustice. He was tempted as we are, verse 15 says, yet without sin. Jesus sees our temptations and struggles and he gets us. Jesus may not have your or my exact temptation, I will tell you that, but he can relate and he does. Jesus enters into our humanity and identifies with us and dies for us. Christmas, if it is nothing else, let Christmas, the nativity set, the nativity scene be the reminder that Jesus enters into our condition and relates with us and dies for us only to then three days later rise and show us that we have victory and hope in him that we cannot find in ourselves. Third, that Santa judged Ralphie's request. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. And he listened and would grant the Christmas wish based only on Ralphie's performance and the quality of the ask. Jesus listens and calls us to come. He loves and listens by contrast based on his performance, not ours. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Religion says God loves and listens based on our performance. Jesus loves and listens 
based on his performance. Man, can I get an amen for that? Like, honestly, if you're sitting on your couch or watching your phone, like that is worthy of an amen. Jesus loves and listens to us, not based on our performance, but on his performance and what he has done. So Hebrews 4 tells us we are weak, but Jesus is approachable. We are tempted, but Jesus is sympathetic. We are sinful, but Jesus is loving and listening. We are needy, but Jesus sees us uniquely and calls us to himself. Matthew 11 says, come, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Are you tired right now? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, carry my weight and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So God is the God who makes time for us and listens to us and longs for us to approach him. What are we to do with this truth? The writer of Hebrews urges the believers to do two specific things. And I think we're to do those same things as well. Number one, he says, let's be holding fast to our confession. That verb is present and active and ongoing. Like a person hanging onto a cliff in a movie, literally hanging onto the edge of a cliff for dear life, straining for all it's worth, knowing that the cliff above has safety and to release and let go, the fall means doom. We need to, we are urged to keep hanging on relentlessly to our faith and confession. Moment by moment, day by day, preach the gospel to yourself. Hang on to Jesus, the great high priest who by his death is hanging on to you. Some of you this year, some of you even this week could have tapped out of the faith and I want to commend you and praise the Lord that you haven't. Let's hang on, keep holding on to our confession. And two, we're urged to be confidently drawing near to the throne of grace. The verb here is also present and ongoing, but this one is passive. Uh, in other words, grace is drawing us in, God giving us what we don't deserve, couldn't earn in Christ. Through Christ's death, God gives us grace, and grace, Christian, is pulling us in. If we are holding onto the edge of that cliff, grace is the thing that is pulling us up to safety. Let grace draw you near to the throne of God and you come confidently, courageously, and frankly with free spokenness. As we draw near, we find unearned and unmerited grace to deal with our mercy, to deal with our sin, grace to deal with power for living. And let me quickly say that to draw near doesn't mean to come to church. It doesn't mean to get religion, as some of you like to say. It doesn't mean to get your act together. Frankly, it may not mean any outward doing at all. When Hebrews calls us to draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace, it's a heart thing. It's letting your heart make its way humbly but confidently into the presence of God. It's to be before God, real as you are, to find mercy and grace. We only have a couple of options when it comes to God and our need. One, we can deny him and his ability to help and we can DIY like Home Depot and Lowe's. They've been so busy during pandemic because people are doing all these DIY projects and they're boredom. We can try to do that with our souls as well. We can deny our need for grace and try to DIY, go our own way, trying to make a life of meaning or religion or self-effort or just self. We can, number two, we can despair we can, life's too hard, but needs are too great. So we either become depressed and nihilistic or we give up and 
We begin to chase shiny things and trophies of this world. But the third option, uh, the option offered us by Jesus is to draw near. There we find Jesus and sympathy and acceptance and hope for the future and covering for sin and resources for need. God is the God who makes time for us, who listens to us, who longs for us to approach and actually approaches us in grace. That's the message of Christmas. Practical handle sometime. Uh, that sometime this week, I want to encourage you, if you've got a nativity set somewhere in your house, I want to encourage you to just set up a chair beside it. I want you to come frankly, real, and confidently, courageously. Come with your joys and your, fresh, uh, and your fears, your doubts and your delights, your frustrations, your all of those things, your victories, your failures, your unbelief, and your hope. And whether you're a Christian or not, I want to encourage you this week to just sit before a nativity set. Maybe talk a little, for sure, listen. Five minutes would be a good place to start. Maybe set a timer and just sit before baby Jesus for five minutes. Christian, hold fast to the confession of faith as you sit. Not yet, Christian, ponder the gospel. The God who made a way for you to come confidently and relationally. Jesus is nothing like that Santa in a Christmas story, nor is he, frankly, the caricatures of stained glass, sterile Jesus, Dusty, nerdy theologian Jesus, goofy, hippie Jesus, or powerless Swedish beauty pageant Jesus, or he, let me tell you, Jesus is the lion and the lamb, the great high priest, the once and for all sacrifice, and Jesus makes time for us and longs for us to approach him. He invites us to approach him even confidently. One of my favorite hymns, and I have a bunch, is Just As I Am. It was written by a woman named Charlotte Elliott in the 1800s. Let me close by reading it today. I grew up with this hymn, honestly, uh, but to this day, I'll often sing it as a prayer and a plea, and I want to invite you to do that as well. She wrote, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within and without, O Lamb of God, I come. I come just as I am the I think this is the fourth verse poor wretched and blind sight riches healing of the mind yea all I need in thee I find O Lamb of God I come I come just as I am last verse thou wilt receive wilt welcome and pardon and cleanse and relieve because thy promise I believe O Lamb of God I come I come let me pray for us